all eyes on the nation and indeed in many places around the world on Georgia, where it looks like a possible uh, sweep by Democrats. Um, and if that is the case, it means Democrats will have control of the U.S. Senate. Um, the Reverend Raphael Warnock declared victory in his race against Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler. The other Democrat, John Ossoff, holds on to a narrow lead over Republican David Perdue. Uh, Perdue's Senate term ended this past Sunday. As of the time we go on air, Ossoff currently has a 16,000 vote lead over Purdue. And if he maintains this lead, the 33-year-old would be the youngest newly elected Democratic senator since Joe Biden in 1973. Of course, uh, the Reverend Raphael Warnock will also be the first African-American Democratic senator from a former Confederate state. And the impact of black voters and the campaign for election rights led by former Representative Stacey Abrams has a lot to do with the Democratic result. According to an Associated Press vote survey, black voters accounted for 32% of the electorate in the Georgia runoff races, a slight increase of 3% from the general election in November. The white share of the electorate declined by 4%. All of this comes after years of voter registration and get out the vote efforts spearheaded by grassroots organizers and Stacey Abrams and her grassroots supporters. Uh, Abrams has also helped to lead the fight against voter suppression in Georgia, especially against communities of color. Uh, let us go now uh, to a clip, and uh, let's go to the uh, clip from the CNN about the election. We heard you overnight noting the fact that your 82-year-old mother, whose hands picked someone else's cotton, you said, got to cast her vote for her son to be senator from the state of Georgia. What was that moment like when the state was called for you? Good morning. Uh, listen, uh, this is a wonderful day uh, here in Georgia, and I believe in America. Uh, I am an iteration and an example of the American dream. I spoke to my mom last night. Uh, and um, when I think about the arc of our history, uh, what Georgia did last night is its own message in the midst of the moment in which so many people are trying to divide our country. At a time we can least afford to be divided, we've got big problems. And I'm deeply honored that the people of Georgia have placed their trust in someone who grew up in public housing, one of 12 children, I'm number 11, the first college graduate in my family. And I hope to bring the concerns of ordinary people to the United States Senate. Perhaps the distractor in chief is President Donald Trump, who did a lot in your state. He campaigned there, yes, but he also called to try to get the presidential results overturned in your state. What impact do you think he personally had on the election results? Oh, I'm sure others will, you know, look over that and, and talk about that. I'm, I'm really focused on the people of Georgia. And I think that's why they stood up and sent the message that they sent uh, last night. I mean, what happened last night is stunning. Uh, we flipped a state and it took a lot of hands to do that is the result of giving people their voice, quite frankly, 
Over the last 10 years, I've worked with many others to register hundreds of thousands of new voters in this state. Those voters alongside others stood up last night and they sent a clear message to Washington that uh, this is the people's democracy. Uh, you don't own it. If you have power, it's because we've extended it to you uh, mm -hmm. for a period of time. It is it is a kind of stewardship. It is a sacred trust. And it's one that I take very seriously. And and uh, I hope to honor that promise in the work that we will do in the days ahead. All righty. So let's welcome our guest. And of course, that was the voice of the uh, new senator, the Reverend Raphael Warnock. I'd like to welcome Jim. Jill Cartwright, who is the Georgia statewide organizer for Southerners on New Ground, or SONG. SONG serves as a home for LGBTQ liberation across all lines of race, class, abilities, age, culture, gender, and sexuality in the U.S. South. SONG works to build and maintain a Southern LGBTQ infrastructure for organizers strong enough to combat the Southern-specific strategy of the right to divide and conquer Southern oppressed communities using the tools of rural isolation, right-wing Christian infrastructure, racism, environmental degradation, and economic oppression. Jill Cartwright, welcome. Good morning, and thank you for having me on the show. Jill, I imagine it was a really long night uh, for you. But uh, let's uh, start off by giving your reaction to the election results thus far. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, everyone around the world, <laughs> or at least the nation, um, you know, heard when Warnock won his election, when it was called that he would be the victor in the race after holding a lead for most of the night. And so... I think that this was pleasing for all of the organizers who have been on the ground talking to voters, as well as the rest of the nation, I'm sure, who's been anxiously watching what's been going on in Georgia. And also, at the same time, well-earned. Um, I think that we worked really hard to be able to see a win like this, to be able to see, you know, a Democratic senator. Um, be able to go to Congress, to go to Washington. Um, and I think that we are expecting the same outcome with the race that still remains. Right. And tell us a bit about how you did it. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. I mean, this is a former Confederate state, right? And we have a black man elected as, as a senator. We have a young Jewish man um, now uh, in the lead. And um, it is, as I said in my intro, somewhat reminiscent of the Black-Jewish um, collaboration that happened during the civil rights era with uh, some who were killed uh, even uh, during that era fighting for these very rights, including uh, the right to vote. But tell us a bit about the operation on the ground for Georgia for the uh, Southerners for New Ground, but also other grassroots organizers. Uh, a lot of credit being given, rightly so, 
to uh, Stacey Abrams. But we also know that she had, uh, to use that militaristic term, there was a, an army of grassroots organizers, a lot of, of the young people and a lot of people in the black community involved in this effort. Tell us about that. Right, right. Um, all of that is true. And I think that the interracial collaboration that you saw uh, specifically between Wanaka and Ossoff was definitely reflected on the ground. Um, Song is a multiracial organization intentionally because we believe that those sorts of alliances and collaboration is necessary for us to achieve liberation for our people. And so our organizing on the ground reflected that. Um, and in terms of how we did it, I think that it was true <laughs> bread and butter organizing that was able to get us to this point and also to get us to um, split the state in the presidential election, in the federal election. Um, I think that it also was a long-term um, sort of effort, though. It definitely was not an overnight success. Um, and Stacey Abrams' leadership was critical, and she's such a visionary and someone who has made a lasting impact on Georgia, an indelible impact on the state, and at the same time is a product of a movement um, in this state that has existed for decades. And that movement is filled with black women. It's filled with Latin, Latino voters and organizers. It's filled with LGBTQ people of all races and ages and abilities. And that movement continues to exist even beyond this election when we get the, the, when we get the electoral victory that we're looking for in the Senate. And I say that because these, we actually see this win as part of a greater sort of image, a greater mosaic of wins and progressive movements that we've been seeing in Georgia for some time. And so this is something that obviously we've prayed for for a long time. We've, you know, worked hard, sweat on our brow to be able to get here. But you can't look at this within the silo of just the election. That would actually do a disservice to the great upswell of organizing work that has been done on the ground. And this was only made possible by that kind of coalitional um, multi-pronged effort. And so organizations, many of the organizations that have worked to help reach um, the millions of voters in Georgia um, are also organizations that, like Song, like Song, for instance, that also not only just do electoral work, but also work within our communities to be able to build long-term solutions and long-term change um, to the kind of issues that we are hoping to send these politicians to the Senate for, to be able to advocate on our behalf. Um, that includes things like mutual aid. Like one of the biggest um, talking points in this election was COVID relief. And so many of the people that we talked to at Song Power, for instance, were uh, very concerned about COVID relief. Like that was the number one issue by far. And, we also know at the same time that that, you know, at the same time, even if we win this election, that COVID relief doesn't come immediately. But we can also at the same time begin to build the sort of infrastructure and relationships, build on the relationships that we have so that 
our neighborhoods and communities can start to find those solutions as well within themselves. And so it's sort of like a dual prong where our focus and our only victory can't be sending Democrats to the Senate to represent Georgia, but we also have to have a bigger picture that includes more than just people who have the ability to vote and people who have the the ability to go to the ballot box, but people who are affected by what happens regardless. Um, And so when you have that big picture sort of vision that is grounded in community-based organizing with organizations from Georgia that have the relationships already, and we can just sort of tap on our neighbors and tap on our people, you know, to mobilize on a day like Election Day, then that's that's a recipe for victory. Right, absolutely well said. And you talked about and on issues, right, that uh, got the attention of, of voters and, and black voters in particular. The black vote had a lot to do with this win. You mentioned COVID uh, relief and uh, mutual aid kinds of efforts. Were there other issues also that you you and other organizations, grassroots organizations, tended to focus on to pull out the vote, including pulling out the vote of low propensity voters, the voters who don't often, you know, come out, particularly in an election that's not a presidential election. Right. And so, yeah, yeah. um, The issues that we saw, I think, from the voters that we polled um, and that we were able to talk to in our conversations on the ground, I think are are pretty reasonable issues that you might expect. So of course, COVID relief was, excuse me, was number one um, by far. Like if we were talking, you know, percentage system, like COVID relief would be 20 points ahead of any other issue in terms of how adamant people were about the urgency of getting real um, emergency aid. Um, And that showed in the the number of people that we saw turning out for the first time, like you said, the number of people who came out to vote after a long period of, of being inactive and also by people who, like, there were a couple conversations, a couple stories I heard of canvassers being like, they talked to somebody who, you know, vote, who actually changed, um, who wasn't normally vote like a, a blue voter, but actually decided to make that change because they so desperately needed that COVID relief. And so that was definitely the number, is, number one issue for our voters. Um, in addition to that, though, um, Right up after that was uh, a desire for systemic racial injustice to be addressed. And, you know, we all heard about or participated in or watched or studied the uprisings that happened last summer um, after the murder of George Floyd. We also all, you know, experienced the different responses that happen mostly on the local level um, to, you know, mayors and chiefs of police and city council people um, trying to figure out how to solve and address some of the issues of racial injustice that had been raised over the summer and beyond. And we saw community organizers activating over these issues as well. And so 
the impact, I think, of those uprisings and of that moment in history has yet to be fully determined. We can't say yet what the full impact of that historic uprising will be, a historic movement. But so far in this election, we're seeing that public opinion about racial injustice, at least right now, has shifted towards wanting to see some real action, wanting to put people in office who are not only going to give lip service to the kinds of issues that Black people in particular and people of color broadly are facing across the nation, but people who are going to put put some things to action and actually make a, address and make real changes. Um, and I think that obviously with the large number of Black voters who were uh, participating in this election and turning out for this election, obviously this it's safe to say that that issue resonates well with them. And the last issue that was really important to our voters, which I find really interesting, especially as a state-based organizer, is healthcare and more, more particularly rural healthcare. Um, and that issue in particular is one that I think is speaks more to the local conditions in Georgia. Um, which I think a lot in, in this election, for obvious reasons, was not as talked about. Like the lo- sort of local conditions in Georgia um, were kind of subverted for, you know, obviously high-profile national stakes of these elections. But at the end of the day, these senators are still representing Georgia and the needs of our people here. And rural health care has suffered as a result of rollbacks on funding, um, attempts to close hospitals and successful attempts to close hospitals um, and remove funding and programs from rural areas. And Georgia, as some might not know, has a black belt in central Georgia that's primarily rural. Um, and it's our black belt because that's where pri- where like counties uh, exist that have more than 70% on average, 70% black or more. And so with those being primarily black rural counties um, and then the effects of this pandemic coming in, you can see why the majority of people who who died from COVID in Georgia were black people. Um, and so that was a really, the, that black belt was hard, very hard hit by the, the COVID-19 pandemic and specifically Albany, Georgia, which is a rural southern Georgia um, city, at one point rivaled New York. It, had the, it definitely at one point had the number one um, number of deaths in the world per capita. Um, and so we're also seeing rural, not just rural voters who got a little bit more shine than they usually do in elections, um, in this election, but also just in general black rural dwellers are also saying, like, we we know what's best for us and we know that we matter and we exist and we, we're demanding that someone represent our, our experience on the national level. Right. That's interesting that you made that point. And, of course, Albany, Georgia uh, had played a very historic role in the civil rights era with the, with the Albany movement and the, the civil disobedience that took place there uh, by uh, black people. But 
Um, your right to underscore the rural and small town counties across uh, South uh, Georgia, because that's the place where black turnout has historically lagged. But that wasn't the case. I mean, it, it wasn't just metropolitan uh, Atlanta, um, which also includes some affluent uh, black residents in, in Atlanta, but also uh, black Georgia natives from the most economically depressed pockets of the state. Um, we're going to need to have you back because there's a lot to unpack here. Um, but before you go, I just uh, wanted, one, I wanted to discuss, for example, the role that women uh, played in all of this. You mentioned black women uh, earlier, but generally, um, the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, they have a fusion approach um, to politics. I mean, bring it, they're multiracial, and they also address the issues of systemic racism, of, of poverty, the war economy, ecological devastation, the distorted moral narrative. And earlier, you, you spoke about your organization's song and the importance of um, that you made a conscious decision to do interracial organizing because you think that this is important um, and needed for the liberation of our people and like me, like you, I'm also of, of African descent. Just tell us a little bit of, about that within the context of the history of, of Georgia and including the collaborations that happened during the civil rights era and this race between Warnock, who, a preacher at Martin Luther King's church and also a young Jewish man somehow seemed to reflect. Uh, just some final thoughts on all this. Jill. Right. I think that, you know, the kind of work that Song is doing and our nature as a multiracial LGBTQ organization is grounded in that history, not just of the civil rights movement and the collaborations that happened in that movement, the solidarity that happened in that movement, but also from many other movements that um, are part of our the, the radical tradition. Um, at every level, when you look at the history of civil rights movements and movements for liberation in the United States, at the very least, um, you see these sort of collaborations and this recognition that our victory and the rights that we are looking to achieve, the dignity and self-determination that we're fighting for, needs to be led by us. We are experts on what we need and experts on our lives. But at the same time, we can't do it alone. And you see that in the civil rights movement with the black Jewish collaborations. there. You also see it in the black power movement. Even the black Panthers collaborated with the young lords in the Asian American movement and so many others and even poor white organizers to be able to create a coalition of people who could bring all different sides of the story, all different struggles to the table and figure out how can we, what is our common denominator? What is our common enemy that we're trying to attack? And how can we combine forces against it? Um, and so we see, we're taught by many of our elders and ancestors before us who were organizers and freedom fighters that this is, the way that this is this collaboration across lines of race and disability and age and sexuality and gender are 
inevitable. They're necessary. You can't you can't get around it if you're trying to get towards a complete vision of liberation. And so in song, we try to build on that history. Now, of course, we still have, you know, the organizations and the projects and groups that are very particularly um, based on one segment of the movement for liberation, whether it be um, Black-led organizations in this current um, movement of the left, whether it be Black members within song or um, Latinx members in song who are gathering Asian members within song. We have, you know, we're multiracial. So we have, we do give those spaces for our different, um, our folks who are of different identities to be able, and not just race, but to be able to practice that self-determination and be able to be right. in community with the people who have the same experience that they do. But at the, at the end of the day, the goal is always that collaboration. And I think that it works, and we're seeing it work with the outcome of this election so far. And also in our, our liberation movement, like Black voters were a very critical piece in this election. If I can go back to talking, if I can, you know, bring that back, Black voters were a very critical piece. Forty percent of the thousands of new voters that voted in this election for black voters. And that will that will continue to be the case in in his southern state and particularly in Georgia. But we also saw that our partners, Song's partners and um allies also showed out um in this election in a way that helped deliver the win and that we couldn't have, that we can't win without um Mi Gente an organization as well that has been in Georgia for a couple of years was able to pull off the largest Latino Hispanic voter outreach campaign ever in Georgia. They reached every single Latino voter in Georgia. And that was like that was the that could have been the difference. Like we that was the difference between winning and losing. Um right. we saw even within song we focused on black voters in a number of counties, but we also reached out to white rural voters, thousands and thousands of white rural voters in our outreach in order to be able to contact them and actually be able to know like what they're what they're thinking about and where they're leaning and if we can't push them to vote blue in this election. And so we saw that kind of collaboration um, at every level and it it speaks to victory. It speaks to a winning strategy. Absolutely. Well, on that note, uh, Jill Cartwright, we are going to have to leave it there, but we would love to have you back and unpack a bit more because you, you really said quite a lot here and really vital information that I'm sure people involved in uh, social change movements everywhere um, will want to know more about your experience and what you've been able to build uh, in that former Confederate state of Georgia. Jill Cartwright, thank you so very much for joining us and congratulations to all of you for all of your work meaning so much for so many of us. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much.